I'm Bob Wubin, founder of Blooming Prairie Nursery, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Soholt. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Bob, I've never seen this before. I've never seen a a garden nursery, a prairie nursery area grow their stuff in three foot by three foot totes. I won't lie. That's weird. That's weird. How, what gave you that idea? Trying to be able to produce plants throughout the growing season has been our biggest goal and by doing it in our totes we're able to do that we can control our soil our water the nutrients in our soil the whole business plus have high quality plants okay so what um did you start with them in the ground like did you plant plants in the ground before you did it in totes we did start traditionally like everybody else we used raised beds and we amended our soil and minimal success Plus, we had invasion of gophers, voles, and a lot of other things damage our crops. So it was hard to manage things without killing all the stuff we're trying to attract. So, and and I mean, they're about what two to three feet tall. So they're not they're not tiny. So are, is that deep enough for the roots that you need? Because prairie ha- can have some really deep roots on some of those plants. That we don't plant them in our totes to make them survive there we are planting them in there to grow our our bare root plants that we dig or digging the plants to make into our putting into our three inch pots and our four inch and our gallons depending on the size of the plant after it's grown for a growing season man well we've done so we've grown plugs plenty of times at hoxie and you know you grow them in the greenhouse and uh your way's just how do you put that better better it's just better. It's uh, and, and and so you showing the process of how they start from seed and you get them in these totes and then you kind of rip them apart and put them in little plugs and then you have them for the growing season. Surgically um, cut them apart. Surge, yeah. We're not like shredding them apart like the Incredible Hulk. Just yeah. Bob showed how you know you can take, uh, you know, he used the word divide. Divide the plant in some very particular areas and depending on the size of the plant that's growing there determines the number of of uh plugs really starts that you can get off of off of each plant and um, you could tell it's a very careful and calculated part of the operation a critical part of the operation man i i'm currently listening to a biography on steve jobs uh as you guys know i've been doing a lot of running and long form biography is just the best thing to listen to when you're running. And some people like pump up music, Nick, just give them. No, a good I love biography. music, but my, it doesn't, it's not interesting. I need something desperately to distract me from running. <laughs> so I don't have to think about it, but something that they talk about a lot in this book about Steve jobs is even from a young, young age, they said his intensity was so interesting. He was so intense about what he cared about. And that's all I could think about while we were talking because you're out there explaining it. And and the big thing for you is, is soil. You're like a soil guy and and you didn't really grow up a soil guy. You just kind of saw a need for it and how big of a deal it was. Um, 
And, well, and and kind of playing off what Nick said, while we were, while you were giving us a tour, I could tell you're very very passionate about what you're doing. How, yeah. many, how many hours a day do you spend? You know, tinkering on stuff or you know, getting the chores done on on your operation here. What would you guess? I'd say our day starts, I'll say 9.30 in the morning, and it runs anywhere from till dark or whenever we run out of gas, basically. But, you know, uh, it's seven, something Seven that, days a week, pretty yes, much? Yes, it's seven days a week, that, you know, just like a regular farmer knows that uh, it, you're very committed to what you're doing. And Joanne says, do your mind, do your mind ever shut off? And I said, I can't help it. It's a, it's a flaw I have. Mm. So uh, I'm thinking about things. I'm always thinking about when I walk by a plant, I look and think, well, no, what's, what's, why are you not looking healthy? And that's been my whole idea. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to look at, think out of the box is my whole deal is how we can make our ecosystem better. And that's what my, my mind works 24-7 on that. Hmm. Hmm. And you really have the closest thing to like a old school farm I've ever seen where you're getting up and dealing with equipment, smaller acre, acres, you know, you're not talking about thousands of acres at a time and you're more in tune with every plant that, uh, that you're growing and, and, and that is fascinating. So, so starting with soil, right? You, you've got a really cool plant nursery, um, specifically like plugs, but starting with the soil, what got you on the soil journey? Because that is not one you hear very often. Starting out this business, I was under the same impression that everybody, we live in Iowa, we have great soil and the, through the years we found that we don't have the great soil. We do have difficulties in plants growing being sustainable, making high-quality seed for me, making high-quality plants. And I started looking at that. Well, we started out, I was a big fan of using miracle Grow, and I used synthetic fertilizer. That was a real pitfall. I mean, it, it, mm. I had plants that were huge. I had rattlesnake mass that was five feet tall with stalks <laughs> about the size of a quarter. I mean, they were, I had germander that was five feet tall, and I planted this in my yard. So you can about imagine the city of Forest City was not impressed with my idea of having a native isn't garden that, isn't that just like kind of ridiculous to really think about how dare you make that yard look like what it should <laughs> yeah what it used to. i i well you said miracle grow was a mistake what why it sounded like you had big plants i had huge plants i hooked up a, a garden hose with a sprinkler system and i had a, a dosatron it was called so i was sucking the nutrients in through my garden hose and putting out in my garden through my sprinkler hose and like i say it, it didn't do what i thought it, the synthetic fertilizer has a tendency to force the plant to take in the nutrients it's not taken in when the plant needs it a good for instance you put fertilizer on your yard how many times are you watering, watering mowing your yard in a year you're mowing it twice a week to keep up with it the nutrient the synthetic fertilizer forces the plants to take it in it's not taken in naturally. And wow, that, I did that not was, know that. That was a quite a, well, I, I said I got beat by the stupid stick really bad with that because I got, I got called in front of the city council with the fourth city, and they want to know what I was going to do about my, my predicament. And I said, it, it, it ended up well. I mean, we, I didn't, I, I got out of that, and I, I amended my problems, and now I've moved on. Man. Okay. So you were dealing with synthetic fertilizer and you're like, well, that's kind of a problem. Where did you start going into technically not so, organic? So I just want to clarify everything's going on here. So your plants were just getting so large because they were taking in fertilizer when they really didn't need to be taking in fertilizer. And they're kind of turning them into like this, this mutant growth 
of plants and the city thought that was unsightly to have one of the residents having a yard with all these giant, you know, for lack of a better term, messy looking plants. Is that, is that kind of what the issue where the rub was? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't what I, I mean, I thought it looked fine, but it wasn't mm-hmm. what they, it blocked my driveway. I lived in a corner lot. And so the alley, the, the people couldn't see up the streets. That was a concern. And one of my ideas was, I thought, if, if a little bit is good, I'm going to put on a little bit better. So say, for instance, your first three numbers on your thing, your nitrogen, your phosphorus, your potassium, and my nitrogen might have been 34%. don't need that much nitrogen. Mm. But I didn't realize that. And then I later on, I went, okay, I'll change that. So I'll use a more of an average mix, a 10-10-10 mix. Well, that helped a little bit, but it still was synthetic fertilizer, and it still forced my plants to feed, the, take on the food. My plants were held huge, but my seed production was nil. There was nothing. Hmm. They, they didn't make good, viable seed. Oh, so they weren't healthy plants. They were just big. Well, they looked good. I mean, they looked just like the miracle Grow advertisements. They were beautiful, but they weren't putting out the production that I needed. And Why did you need production at the time? I wanted, I w- my goal was to have be a seed producer mm-hmm. and <laughs> that never accumulated. I was not getting any seed production from my stuff. Yeah. It was just the plant energy was going into the growth of the leaf tissue and the flowering part of the plant and the everything, but the, the putting on and growing seed, viable seed. But you basically started growing plants just in your yard. You know, killing, killing the excuse of every person who's ever said, I don't have an acreage. How could I do that? Man, (laughs) that's really cool. So, but how do you jump from realizing, okay, this synthetic stuff's not going to work and your, your stuff right now, it's not technically organic. You call it natural, natural organic matter. Not certified organic is, is. Oh yeah. Not, not certified organic. So how did you jump? I mean, obviously kind of an evolution, but walk us through that. The biggest thing for me is when I had heard about compost. And at that time, there was compost available in the Saragorda County landfill over in Clear Lake. And I brought that to my yard. And I thought, well, now this is a ticket. And so I blend, I started mixing the compost. Well, there was very limited availability of it. So when I moved from Forest City down here to Des Moines, it was available, uh, really available through the Metro Waste. And I started mixing the compost with I went. I transferred to raised beds again, and I blended my sand and the compost in, in the raised beds, and that was my start of. I still use synthetic fertilizer, and again, it didn't do me the benefits that it wanted to do. It it still made the plants tall and gangly and very little seed production, mm. and then I just went to straight compost. I got away from the synthetic fertilizer totally. I mean, I, I had the realization that this is not my friend. It's my worst enemy because it's creating. Unhealthy plants. I'm not getting the seed production. I need to do something different. Hmm. Man, that's really interesting. So you started seeing a need early on, and um, it it just kind of shoved you down the the rabbit hole of studying soil. And what I think is interesting is, well, maybe we should ask you this: what before you got into to doing what you're doing now? What was your what what was your what did you do for work in the past? What started this whole dream, I guess, or down this path, as you say, 
was I was a, uh, one of the original roadside coordinators for the Iowa DOT out of oh, Four City okay. Maintenance Shop, oh. and we were we were sent to a lot of schooling. So we got to sent to learn how to introduce natives into our problem areas with noxious weeds. So Canada thistles was our big target mm. thing. Uh, wild parsnip uh, and how to deal with all these uh, invasive weeds that we have to deal with in our right of way. And then we were introducing the native forbs and along with the grasses in there. And that was the start of everything. Man. So it, it the prairie really grabbed you then. It kind of kind of took you in. You decided, okay, I want to I want to do something about this. So what year was it when you were starting to grow these plants in your yard? Which I just think is fascinating. That's the most Paul Adama thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Paul, sorry. Paul would approve. Yeah. The year we started this, I would say it was in 1995. And the idea behind this was I have a, a two lots in Four City. It's on, uh, and it's a, I had oak trees for my, I had an oak savanna all the way around my yard. So I had shade and sun both. And I thought this would be a perfect spotting start to planting my, getting my soil production or my seed production in order and my plants and everything else. Man. So, and so, so you went about, you, you gathered some seed, you started planting it. You were trying to grow for seed. You were just using miracle grow. It didn't work. And then you went on this journey of getting something a little more organic. When did you start selling plants? Actually, we, I got a, a grant from, they called it the VAP fat. So I got a grant from the government for $10,000. So I originally started with plants from Prairie Moon Nursery. I bought bare root plants. And at that time I bought other plugs from Ion Exchange. So I started out with plugs instead of seed. But I grew the seed in my garage with under uh, grow lamps, so it was a, a pretty basic setup. Setup. I mean, from a growing standpoint, it was really, it worked. It just wasn't as efficient as it could have been. Hmm. And what do you mean by wasn't it was working? But like, what would have made it more efficient at the time? I didn't have the sunshine that I needed. I had they were getting the artificial light and the grow lamps, and it was in a garage and it wasn't you know the the ventilation wasn't adequate, so there was a lot of cold spots. So I had hot and cold spots. And the the warm air was up the top of the thing, and the cold air was down below where my plants were. So they didn't grow the best when it was cold. So when I started my seeds in say April, they weren't really or even March, they weren't getting the the warmth they needed to germinate and been and become uh, healthy. Hmm. So. When did you make the jump out here to this farm? We bought this place in 2009, and it mm. was been, it's been a slow transformation. It, it, uh, the, and now we've got it to where we got our garden center, and, and uh, we just made a lot of advancements in the last few years. Yeah. No, you, you have a really cool spot out here. I highly recommend it. Anyone who's in the Des Moines, greater Des Moines area, it is a really great oh, place yeah. to get plugs and, yeah. and uh, potted plants. So when – so. You're, you're doing prairie plants. You start with the vision of doing prairie plants. Were you on this farm when you decided, hey, I'm going to go into mass soil and compost uh, production? No, actually, I, we, we started uh, just about maybe a, a mile east of here at Bill Fink's. We had some friends of ours that Joanne worked with, and she said that these people were interested in having a prairie planted. So I... I planted their prairie for them with the regards that I could use their land for growing my production. And I had started out, I had 25 raised beds over there. And that's where I started my production at. And mm, I sold mm. from that. And I dug, everything was dug by, done by hand. I, I made the raised beds and I... So you were selling soil. plants, not seed then? 
Just plants? Both. Both? I, I was selling seed. I, I sell my seed wholesale to Prairie Moon Nursery in Winona, Minnesota, and I've been working with them folks for the last 30 years, I guess, close yeah. to. Mm. And, you know, we've just never gotten away from that. I, I sell my excess seed that I couldn't use to them. And I would be in contact with Bill. Bill Carter was the one at the time, and Alan Wade was the owner of it, and they would let me know what they needed in surplus of seed or what I could use. And at that time, it was pretty much everything was available because there wasn't the production there is nowadays. Mm-hmm. So what about, like, back then till now, what, what's been, like, the most common plant you've sold? Everybody likes the Blazing Stars. Everybody likes the Milkweeds now because of the Monarchs are brought front and center. Uh, but another common one that we sell is Prairie Smoke. It's just a beautiful mm-hmm. little plant. Mm-hmm. And it makes a nice accent planting. You can plant it in your front row, and it does really well. And it has a cool, wispy seed heads, and it keeps its foliage all year. So it's been just a nice plant. Yeah. But there's, you know, the, as the demand grows, the bottle gentian is a huge seller. Queen of the Prairie is a huge seller. You know, people yeah. now are seeing more yeah. varieties of things. And so now... Queen uh, of the Prairie is a wild-looking thing. Yeah. It looks, it looks like, like the Queen of the Prairie. <laughs> yeah. No, it looks like, like it's like pink, and it's fluffy. It's like a it's cloud. Tall. Yeah. 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 She's in, she's in charge. So what's your favorite plant? I have a lot of favorites. I mean, it, it my favorites change as the season comes because first thing in the spring, I like the look of the of the shooting stars. They're really cool. They first ones to bloom. I don't have any pasque flowers currently, but we're going to be growing them. Uh, then comes the middle bloomers, the early bloomers. The, I like the look of the coreopsis. And I mm. like the look of uh, the prairie flocks, the gold alexanders. And then the midsummer bloomers, I got uh, the prairie blazing stars. I, I like them a lot. Golden Alexanders are a hard one. I usually have to warn producers about it, or producers, uh, landowners um, about it when I'm putting it in their mix because it can look like wild parsnip if you don't know the difference. You know, it's shorter. Yeah, the first time, first time I went to work in our Golden Alexanders field, I, I, I it was a real step of faith because I understood well. I've scar, I had scars on my arm from. Uh, wild parsnip run-ins uh, and uh when i was waiting in there i'm like this could be this could end up being the worst week of my life if this is <laughs> if this is what it looks like yeah but yeah yeah it looks it looks very similar you know something kind of going along with the soil thing what so you guys i mean 2009 you know all of us at this table wish we'd bought more land in 2009 <laughs> um but what was like what was the land history here was this all you know row crop at the time you know when you guys purchased or was this uh was this you know pasture was it i mean what was the what was the the land use history here and then what was the soil like when you got here the land use was it was a soybean and corn farm i mean they they farmed every bit of it that they could with and uh uh the land use of it, I mean, the, the soil was, was very poor. Very, the, All the topsoil is gone, hmm. and we did a soil test, and I found out that my organic matter was like less than 1%. So it's been very heavily farmed and typical agricultural use, and, and this was a result of it. I mean, it's just the soil was played out. There was not, it was difficult to get things established. So, so would you say, I mean, obviously it's different everywhere all throughout the state, but would you say, you know, the circumstances – that you saw here when you had your original soil testing done, would would it be similar to most other farm ground in at least, you know, South central Iowa? 
the biggest thing that our ground is not <clears throat> flat. It, it's hi- it's a little rolling, a little hilly, mm-hmm. and so it's typical with the soil erosion. We'd get heavy rains, and you would see the gullies even in the corn and bean fields. I mean, there would be gullies in between the rows. I mean, it would it would erode that bad. So yes, as far as any ground that has any slope to it, it would be pretty much, I believe, typically the same. Now you get around some of the flatter areas where they've got flat soil, they still have their their black dirt. They don't have it's not down to the to the clay like we are. Hmm. So, hmm. well, because I think I think most people don't even you know that doesn't that doesn't even pop in their mind. They think Iowa and then they think topsoil, but but it's interesting to know that there's large areas that the topsoil is is all but gone, right? And I think if you talk to any farmer you would they're well aware of that the, of the mistakes of their past every year they have to put more fertilizer inputs in to grow the same crop that they get anticipating for the following spring and that's one of the issues of that i mean our, our soils cannot sustain without having inputs put into that and one of the interesting things you were saying was that the prairie didn't have as much of an effect on the soil as you thought like you were saying that you expected the soil to really bounce back in organic matter with prairie, and you were saying it hasn't. When did you discover that? That was my biggest shock because our prairie had been established for about 10 years, and then I found out about doing soil testing. And we did our soil test on our prairie, and I thought, you know, 10 years, my, my, my organic matter is going to be 8 10%. My, to my shock, my, my organic matter was like 3.4%. After having all of that, nutrients from the carbon recycling, the organic carbon from the plant roots. I thought, boy, I'm going to have great soil because I got lots of tall grass, prairie grasses, lots of tall... Were you burning at the time too? Every five years we tried to burn it. Wow. So yeah. that, that included it, two burns, which is good. It should have been. It should have been. And so that was my shocking realization. And my big issue, when we got the soil test back, I have nutrients available to my plants my nitrogen was very low, but the phosphorus, potassium, and even some of your macronutrients were there. But my prairie was not looking like I thought it would. It was actually converting from a four mix to a tall grass prairie. My grasses were taking over. Well, we had to do something to intervene with that. I thought that's when I, and one of the big things was that we found was very low organic matter. Also, my pH was about 8.1 which is very high, it's alkaline. And that mm. caused all them nutrients, even though they're available to the plants, plants couldn't get at it. But our organic matter was low. I mean, there's all these factors that created this unhealthy soil. So, I mean, getting up to that 3%, that does sound like a bit of a win, at least, you know, going from where you were less than a, less than a percent starting out, but still far from, uh, you were showing us some documentation that, that you had uh, found, collected through the years, it's believed that the original, you know, the original native, you know, virgin prairie that would have been here when the first, you know, the first people were here uh, was, exp- it's believed to have been around 10% organic matter made up that, that topsoil. Is that correct? That's what, if we could back up the clock, say 200 years ago. Our prairies, they said organic matter was up to 10% organic matter. Along with that organic matter, we had the layer. We had our old layer was our original of our soil profile. Then we have the topsoil, and then we would have uh, the clay down below that. Well, 
we had all this nutrients in the soil from the, com from the organic matter. And along with that, we had all the, so the soil microorganisms. Since we've been using farming practices of current, we've done away with all that. All of our, all of our topsoil is gone. All of our organic matter is gone. And so along with that, all of our uh, ecosystem that was in the soil has long disappeared. And that's why we're having the struggles we are to get it to come back. We need to re we need to revitalize our soil by adding organic matter back to it. Mm, man, that's that's pretty wild. So if not that you know this would be the case, but if you had say on on what happened with Iowa soil, what would you recommend happen? That we start a, a some type of a, a system that we can actually be using our natural resources that we're wasting to recycle and, and rebuild our soils. What natural resources are we wasting? Wood chips was it would be a big one. We yeah. we had a derecho a few years back in Cedar Rapids mm -hmm. area and we had millions of cubic yards of wood chips that we got went up sending off to another another state to Illinois I believe it was. But we could have used that with recycling it and turned it into compost and used that on a lot of our 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 fields. What's the difference in the soil or the uh, compost that you're talking about and the, you know, putting on just nitrogen and, and lime, you know, with anhydrous and stuff like that. Our biggest thing is that uh, the nitrogen, I believe it has a negative charge to it, so it doesn't tie up in the soil and it doesn't stay put. That, that's the farmer's biggest issue. They, they put the anhydrous down and the nutrients don't stay put, even with putting down their manures that they put down from their own hog confinements. They're putting it on soils that have no way of absorbing that and holding on to it. Pre-plow era, our soils were, were a porous soil. So all of our water used to go into our, eco, into our groundwater and go down into aquifer. We're no, longer, we're no longer doing that. We've changed our soil chemistry. The soil no longer, it's impervious soil now versus pervious, uh, previously where the water could percolate in. We've gotten away from that. And, uh, so our soils have, have had a huge change in them. How, and uh, getting back to where we were is going to be a very costly procedure. And to rebuild our organic matter is going to take a while. And the thing with the organic matter, a lot of people said, well, I put three quarters of an inch of compost on my yard and it's gone. Well, that's the beauty of it. The organic matter is used by the, micro, the soil microbes. The soil uses it. It ties up in the soil. It doesn't stay there. It's something that needs to be replenished. Well, when our prairies were uh, vast in Iowa, we had a constant source of carbon. You know, the leaves were used, and the whole recycling thing was going on. We've gotten yeah. away from that. Big, and big bison turds hanging out on the ground. There you go. And the grazing. And the big thing was that our Native Americans at the time knew all of this with the soil. They actually did the burns, and that was that helps recycle a lot. Well. When they did the burns, the bison came there because the vegetation was lush in the spring, and it all tied in. And they knew where the hunting grounds were. They didn't have to chase the bison very far because they prepared their pastures for them, basically. Uh, we've, we've gotten away. We've, we've lost all of our treasures of Iowa's soils. Yeah, that's a good way to say that. The, the things that you really can't have it back in the exact same way, and that's something – uh, we talk about, you know, fairly often we're, you know, really the three of us here are all prairie reconstructionists, right? We, we try to go into, you know, I'm looking out the window right now and 
and I'm looking at uh, not on not on Bob's property, uh, but uh, a harvested uh, soybean field, and it's the deadest thing in my view right now. Oh, there's a, there is a sheet metal shed over there. It's got about the same amount of life as that sheet metal shed. Um, <laughs> oh no! Uh, but the field's on the other side of some of Bob's. Right, right, and. And uh, if you were to go plant prairie into that soybean field, it would be a lot better. And even we just talked about that with the organic matter. But there's still like, like I mean, Nick, you you make you build mixes all the time for reconstructions. Mm-hmm. Like what what is considered a really good number of species? Oh in a man, re- really good sixty. Yeah. So whereas you know, you're, you're over a hundred species in an acre in, in, in a, you know, true going back, setting back the clock like 200 years ago, you know? And, and so there's just things that are missing that, um, are just like, like what Bob said, the cost of getting those treasures of Iowa soil back is just the cost is incalculable in some ways. You said something that I wanted to pick your brain and maybe you don't know, but, uh, you said, well, my prairie, my, you know, wildflower and, and tall grass prairie was turning into just a tall grass prairie. Do you think, because that's a huge issue in prairie reconstructions, you put a little bit of big blue stem in there and 20 to 30 years, it'll be just big blue stem. You're hoping for 10 or 15 of good diversity. You think that's a soil issue. Is that, is that how I'm understanding that correct? It's absolutely a soil issue because the thing is the grasses, any of the graminoids can grow in a lot lower environment with nutrients than the Forbes can. And that's what we found out. Now, that was our, our aha moment, our claim to fame. We started applying the compost to our soils. That helped. But to apply that on my large fields, it's 20 acres, it would be very detrimental. Because to put a half inch of compost on, on an acre of ground, you're looking at about 57 cubic yards. Can't do it physically. You'd, be, you'd have to have a, like the farmers use a manure spreader, you'd have to be putting it on very heavily. Anyway, uh, the problem that we ran into and what we tried was we used worm castings and char and I blended it and we started out very, very simple. We used a fire hose in the back. Tessa would ride in the back of the truck and spray out of my 550 and we sprayed our prairie. Well, that first year, the results were like phenomenal. You had a Ford F550? Yes, that, that's what we. That's what. That's I, a huge truck. Sorry, I, that's all I could think about. That's like borderline a semi. Is that like a ton, a, a ton and three quarter? Is that what that is? Yeah, well, we could haul about five ton in it. It was le- legal with nineteen thousand. Not behind it, in it. In it, we wow. could we could haul about four ton. <laughs> so it's a smaller truck, but it, it had a dump box on it. Well, Tessa would ride in the back, and we had the transfer pump, and she would spray out with the garden with the fire hose, a two inch fire hose, and it was very. Time consuming, very, you know, as we perfected our methods, we got it down to where I'm putting down, I can put down 40 to 50 gallons per acre, and I can run three and a half miles an hour, and I can do absolute coverage. And yeah, that's the other thing I was thinking is it probably had to be hard to really have an accurate coverage when you're when you're kind of freehanding it like that. We started out doing our, our whole prairie, and we ended up just doing the areas that were the most vital. So let's say along the driveway, we wanted to make it showy. And mm. that's where... But our first year putting the worm castings down and the char was like the, the plants just like burst out of the ground. I mean, we mm. had early bloomers blooming. The Ohio spider warts were beautiful. Uh, and it was like, wow. Well, that was our, I say, our aha moment. That was our, our starting of a concept. Something new. Yeah, that is really, really cool. And, uh, and 
so so you sell bags of compost but if someone wants to like spray like this the um the solution i would say that like compost liquid that you have would they just like mix it in with like a, a drum of water you with know? the I, universal solvent yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know how how would someone else using your compost mimic spraying it on We've developed two different systems with our, we use some that we use, our golden brew is what I call it, is brewed with our brewer. So we have a, a brewer that we've built, and so it takes up to four hours to brew it, but we get 250 gallons, so that makes a concentrate. So that make about 500 gallons, so it matches my 500 gallon tank in my truck. And then we have also, we have our golden brew that we have so that we can apply through, say, a hydro seeder, where the golden brew has to be, agitated so we put it through our sprayer and as, as it's spraying out it's being agitated recycled so it's constantly keeping it suspended mm. it doesn't stay uh, you don't suspended. want it sitting in the bottom of the the jug basically is what no basically it will yeah, settle down you know, yeah, as you yeah. as mm -hmm. you go through the field you're pounding and you're vibrating and it would end up settling down to the bottom we want to get away from that so we put agitation in there when i designed my sprayer i did that well, a hydro seeder has the paddles in it, so it's constantly mm -hmm. agitating that. And it's used to handling that porous material. And so we have the two different methods. Mm. But for the average homeowner, they can mix it into a gallon jug and spray it that way. Yeah. You can mix a quarter cup, quarter to a half a cup in a gallon jug of water and apply oh, it. Oh, so one your... bag goes a long ways. Yeah, it's going a long ways. Wow, wow. So how often would you, someone's got like a little 500 square foot pollinator that they bought from Hawks and Native Seeds and <laughs> uh, and they want to spray it, how often do they need to spray it? Once or twice a summer or what are you thinking? It depends upon, and there again, I'd like to refer to what we, we say, uh, our soil test and see what it does. And we can even go one step further. You can take your plants and you can take a plant tissue sample of it and we can send it into Midwest Labs and they will analyze it and tell us what the deficiencies are, mm. what it needs. Mm. That way we're not guessing. This whole plant science is really, there is really a science to everything. And all of our issues that we have, our soil test would give us the ultimate, it gives us all of the things we need. And we look at three main factors. We wanna know what your, what your organic matter is, we wanna know what your pH is, and we wanna know what your cation exchange capacity. With those three What's things- What's the last, could you explain the last one? The cation exchange capacity is, is there's three different nutrients that we're looking at, and I believe it's the, I don't have them right in front of me, but uh, when we balance that, that tells us that our soils are starting to become healthy. And the pH is another thing, it's, it's your acidity or your alkaline in your soil, and that's very important because we like to shoot a target for about seven is, is neutral. And when your soil is neutral, the, the nutrients are available to your plants that you've put into your soil. And so that's where we're looking at. Hmm. That is fascinating. So, so let's say someone says, uh, I don't want to get it. I don't, I don't want to get it tested. I don't want to pay for that. I just have a little garden plot. Would you, do you have a recommendation on how often they should spray it with your golden brew, which by the way, I might steal for a coffee shop drink name later on. Just a heads up. <laughs> <laughs> so don't, don't copyright or uh, patent that name. <laughs> but yeah, how often would you recommend they, uh, they spray that? Right now we're coming into the fall, so a good a good application now will help you know the nutrients become to the plants available because the plants are looking for nutrients. So they will soak it in really good because the plants go into production mode. When we start getting days shorter, the plants know that winter's coming, and then we get our first killing frost. Then they really go into production mode of 
of uh, storing them nutrients. So applying it this fall, and you plant it, do a foliar application of it, so you're getting it on the leaves, and what doesn't land on the leaves goes into the soil, and it still is a benefit because the soil, the microbes will be able to use it. So, and application-wise, you can do it this fall. would be great. You can maybe even do it twice because we're still early yet. When the ground's frozen, it's not going to be doing much as far as absorbing into the soil, but up to the ground freezes, you could do it every two to three weeks. Wouldn't be over-applying it. Now, the beauty of this being that this is not like synthetic fertilizer, so we're not forcing that plant to take in the nutrients. The, the plants take in the nutrients as they want it, but now it's available to them when they do decide they want it. So what triggers the plants to drive the nutrients? We don't know yet. There's not been, the research hasn't been done about that. But we do know that fall is a great time to do this. And okay, so just one, once a year in the fall would be good. That's to start with. But now, see, we need to also look at the standpoint that our soils are so depleted. If we're trying to, if we're trying to recreate an ecosystem in our, in our soil, we need to be able to feed them microbes throughout the growing season. Mm. So whenever the ground's above 50 degrees, the plants are starting to grow, and that, they're taking in nutrients. That's a, that's a key part of this whole conversation. You're not just feeding plants. You're feeding the existing uh, uh, microbial ecosystem, like you said, that's, that's there in the soil, which makes me think that, when you decided to start fertilizing your prairie after you had your 10 years of growth and, and kind of like that shocking revelation of, wow, this isn't building organic matter like I expected, I still got to think that that prairie ground received that fertilizer um, better than, say, that we'll go back to the example of the soybean ground over there because there was probably a better microbial ecosystem already existing in that prairie ground. Would that... So, like, if somebody is considering using the fertilizer, it's good to already have some prairie established there to, to fertilize as opposed to just going into bare dirt that's been, you know, reworked or something like that? Absolutely. And yet, there's one key factor that, that I didn't understand at the time, but one of the big things that we found when we did our soil test was our pH was 8, and that means it was very alkaline. Well... When we did our soil test, we had a lot of macro and micronutrients in our soil already, even though it was depleted. Mm. The soil naturally does produce these nutrients, and the, the ecosystem, the microbes, do help produce this. But the problem being, our alkaline soil was not allowing that to be transferred to the plants. So when we sprayed our, our golden brew on it, it was getting a foliar application. The plants were taking in some through the, the photosynthesis just of the, of the sun and, the, and getting it on the leaves itself. There went some to the soil, and some of it probably got available, but the, the microbes weren't able to process it and make it available to the plants like we'd like. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So, so uh, how did how did you then adjust that pH? You know, get it a more. I guess technically you're making it more acidic, even though you're getting it to a neutral pH of seven. But what what did you do to bring that pH down a little bit? This was the, the beauty of the science. We work with a company called Artie, and they're in Prairie City, Iowa. And Artie, uh, he does the, he introduced me to the char. The char is probably my biggest breakthrough, and that not only helps hold the nutrients, it acts like a, a throwing a billion tiny sponges out. It ties up the nutrients, because the nutrients are in parts per million. So imagine all them parts per million, now the char is tying that up. But Bernardo had done the research for me and said we need to put elemental sulfur on it. And that's where we started in 21. We sprayed elemental sulfur 
on our whole prairie. And this year, I mean, my prairie made a, we burned it, of course that helped. We burned half of it. And I have the soil test sent in to Midwest Labs to find out what it was, because I did 21. My pH was still 8.8, 8. it was still high. And we put the elemental sulfur on and, and last year in 22, and this year in 23, we didn't do anything with it. And I did the soil test, so we'll, know, we'll have better data okay, to be yeah. able to give that. But you just from a response from the fertilizer since adding the sulfur in the char, you've seen you've seen a better uptake of those of that fertilizer, the gold brew. The elemental sulfur is a really slow process. It does not change your pH overnight. It takes the whole growing season for the microbes to break okay. the sulfur down. It's a slow process. We could use citric acid would be a smart a faster deal. But now you start using acids, you might have some burn going on. So mm-hmm. we were careful about that. The cool thing, the thing that I hear over and over again, you're not saying this, but what I'm hearing you say is we decided that we are going to take the hill. We're going to climb the hill for the better, for the better result, right? So you can go on a hike and you can go straight forward and have no incline. You can go on a hike and you can go straight down and, you know, have the easiest job possible. But then you find yourself in the bottom of the valley one day, or you could do what Bob's doing here. And you said, man, that view up there, that looks like a good view. I'm going to hike straight up. And the marathon every, hike. Every single step you've taken has been, you know, you're saying it like, oh, yeah, this will take more years. More years, people, means more financing. More financing means either begging the bank, making more money, having another job elsewhere. You know, this these are not easy steps. He's talking about great breakthroughs. But what you're not hearing is about all the the six or seven non-breakthroughs, the frustrating times when the plants didn't grow. Um, and that is a what later is really, really cool. And you're so yeah. the, you can hear it when you're talking, you're so passionate, but you, you see that you're passionate based off of all the work. Like we're looking around here, look at all this work, mm-hmm. these thousands and thousands and thousands of hours that have important in this place. It, you're, you're a hero, Bob. You're like, you're, you're willing to do the thing and, and nobody's willing to do the thing. And that is proven because nobody has done it. You know, no one is willing to do all this work. And we were even talking to Bob before this and, uh, he's, I'm, I'm not interested in the money. If I was going to be rich, I'd already be rich. He said, uh, he said, I just want, you started going into a future for your kids. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. One of the things that I, I said is that, you know, <laughs> If I was if I was in this for the money, I, I should have I should have stopped doing this a long time. But I should have been a nonprofit versus a profit trying to, to be a profit business because it's been the research and development has been very laborious. As as uh, Nicholas is saying that uh, you know I had a lot of pitfalls. I said I I've been beat by the stupid stick for the last twenty six years. I, said, <laughs> you know, I got places that I've been I thought they lived not alone, but there, there's there's not a bruise on my body that wasn't beat somewhere of failures. But out of them failures, and I said, this is what I've had people tell me, that I'm not a very good scientist because I don't stick to the study. I go outside <laughs> the box. So if something doesn't work, I make it work. So if the synthetic fertilizer didn't work, I used the compost. That was better. But putting the worm castings down, that's better yet. Well, now we went one step further, and we have our golden brew that we perfected. And it's something that's sustainable. It's chicken manure. And it's readily available. And as we progress this, we're going to be using pig manures. I mean, working with Artie, we are going to be able to develop this, how we can make this available to the millions. And we will perfect our methods. And that's the beauty of working with Artie. He has engineers, chemical engineers. I mean, we have available to him at his disposal. And we will create this process. But back to what Nicholas was saying, I said, uh, 
I believe that we have handed our children a huge shit sandwich in what we've done to our land. Delicious. Hmm. And there's right now, there's nobody out there looking at how we can improve our soils. And the Blooming Prairie Advantage is going to be that keystone thing that we need that's going to help bring back our ecosystem, bring back our healthy soils, because these products are all readily available. And as we refine, we've refined our methods, and now we're going to be able to produce large amounts of compost Man. using mm. leaves and wood chips. Mm. That's, well, a good, that's a good vision for the future. You want... Yeah. Bob's after healthier land, just like uh, is our goal here at, yeah. at Hoxie. If we if we weren't in the middle of harvest season, we wouldn't have such a hard deadline on having to leave today. But Bob, it, it's really been a, a pleasure. Thanks for showing us around, and we're excited to uh, we're excited to see how things go here, and and definitely want to keep tracking with you. I, I got one question for you before we go, though. Um, if you could change anything, snap your fingers and change anything about the world, what would it be? How we look at how we recycle our waste products. That would be the go- biggest thing that we could look into doing that. Mm. That is a great answer. No one's ever given that answer or anything close to that answer. Mm-hmm. But, uh, man, friends, family, listening, mostly friends. Most of my family don't want to listen to my podcast. Mm. <laughs> uh, they, they hear me talk enough. Uh, my sister actually was listening to one, and she was like, I would listen to a full podcast, an hour and a half with you, and then – you came over to my house and I had to listen to you for an hour to have longer. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, Gabriel. But uh, thanks so much for tuning in. If you've got a friend who's starting a garden and they're getting beat with the stupid stick, send them this podcast that Bob got beat enough for, for us all. Uh, saved us by the, by the beatings on his back. Thanks, Bob. Um, but uh, don't forget, we are sponsored by dad, Hoxie Native Seeds, Carol Hawksberg, and don't he, uh, he pays for this out of his own goodwill. He he likes to pay us to do this so that you guys know more about conservation and we can make better decisions, not only voting, but with our dollar and with our very own land. And because our decisions make a difference because conservation happens one mind at a time. <laughs> <laughs>